we've been considering this subject of idolatry, especially the contemporary idols of the heart. You know, the common view of idolatry, the thing that usually comes to mind when we talk about it, has to do with the worship of images or statues. This is certainly part of idolatry, but the Bible has a much broader view of the subject. It includes the worship of false gods and the merging of the worship of the true God with the worship of false gods. And when we're talking about false gods, we're talking about non-existent gods because there's only one true and living God. And you see in the scriptures often the prophets would mock idolatry as something foolish. You know, you go out and you cut a tree down. Part of it you use to, to warm yourself by a fire, and the other part you ca- carve into an idol. Prophets say that, what foolishness, what blindness to do something like that. So the gods of the nations were told in Psalm 96.5, for all the gods of the peoples are idols, but our God made the heavens. In other words, the gods of the nations were mythical, made-up gods, which were almost always represented by some visible form. So all the forms of false religion, all the religions around the world are forms of idolatry. Even if they don't have some statue that you put up on the wall or something, they're still idolatry. In the Bible, idolatry, this worshiping of serving or serving false gods was considered to be the ultimate expression of unfaithfulness to the true God. And so consequently, it was repeatedly spoken against by the prophets. Now our subject this morning, the idol we want to look at this morning is the idol of religion. Not the idols of religion, but the idol of religion. Religion itself can be an idol when a religious system takes the place of God. Anything that displaces God as central in your life is an idol. And amazingly enough, religion can do that. It really is one of the main idols. Let me just uh, read you what Lloyd-Jones said. This is off of or out of an article he wrote called The Living God. And he said, Now I believe it is important that we should analyze for a moment the ways in which we tend to forget that God is a God that acts. The living God is real and acts in our lives and in the world. One, of course, is the danger always of religion. Religion is generally the greatest enemy of the Christian faith. Think about that. The greatest enemy of the Christian faith. To be a religious person is one of the greatest hindrances to becoming a Christian because it gives certain satisfactions. And then skipping down a little bit, he says, Religion is dangerous, you see, for this reason, that it is always something that puts emphasis on our activities, our practices. We practice religion, and therefore we tend to think 
that it is entirely a matter of our activities, our conduct, our behavior, with the result that God is nearly always forgotten. Taken for granted, of course, but therefore forgotten. So, the greatest enemy of the Christian faith, he says, is religion. Often, this idol is very closely connected with the idol that we looked at last week, which was the idol of power. This is surely because religion is just another, can be just another form of a power play, a power grab, something used to advance an agenda. I'd like to just explore that connection just a moment here. You actually see this is something that Jesus himself had to deal with with his own disciples. You remember the account in in Matthew 20 where the mother of the sons of Zebedee wanted Jesus to let her son sit at his right, her sons to sit at his right and left hand in his kingdom. Now in the parallel account in Mark, we're told that these sons, James and John, were right there with their mother when this happened. So here's James and John and the mother, and she's, they all are requesting that, that they would have a place at his right and left hand in his kingdom. What they were asking for, really, was they wanted a position of power and authority in this coming kingdom. Now, when we read that account, we're prone to think in terms of the second coming of Christ. But that's not what they, I don't really think that's what they were thinking about. They were still thinking in terms of the Messiah, that is Christ, setting up an earthly kingdom right then. And they wanted positions of of authority and power in that kingdom. Jesus tells them that this attitude is not the proper one for his followers. Let me just read to you here. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So he says that's you've got the exact wrong attitude concerning following me. If that's the attitude you're taking, this thing of wanting power. So there's that connection there between this idol of religion, this religious attitude, and this one we looked at last week, the idol of power. One, one other one we might just make reference to if you want to turn to Third John. <clears throat> Towards the end of this New Testament. And verse 9, Third John, verse 9. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. So here's a guy that loves to be first. He likes that position of prominence and power. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words, and not satisfied with this, neither does he himself receive the brethren, and he forbids those who desire to do so, and puts them out of the church. Think of this guy. He's putting people out of the church because they wouldn't, listen to what he was saying and go by what he was uh, mandating as being in that position of power. He said, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, 
for what is good. He's saying that attitude is evil. So, obviously, this man's religion was associated with the, the idol of power that we looked at last week. But I, I don't want to spend too much time on that because that was more of the message last week. What we want to zero in on this week has to do with this idol of religion. Actually, it was two weeks ago, wasn't it? Uh, the thing I want to point out is that your religion can become your idol. Your religion can become your God. And really, I'm not wanting to emphasize the religions of the world. It's certainly true of the religions of the world. But I want to emphasize that this is true in relationship to the religion of Christianity. Where a religious system itself becomes ultimate, you have an idol, even if that system purports to be Christian. Let me just say that again. Where a religious system itself becomes ultimate, you have an idol, even if that system purports to be Christian. You could put it another way. This Christian idol of religion makes you think that you're devoted to God when you're actually serving a religious, religious system about God. And this is dangerous because it's subtle. You see, there's a subtle subtlety about this. You don't realize it, but you're idolizing your religion, you see. And this can bring great harm to yourself and to others. Now, I just want to say something to the teenagers here and the college students. One of the things that's often brought out in literature today... Uh, especially by the mili- what are called the militant atheists, people like Dawkins and Harris and Hitchens, and by unbelieving teachers in a college classroom. One of the things that's often brought out is that religion, especially the Christian religion, has brought about much evil. And you need to be aware that this is partially true. Christianity has done great good, but the Christian religion, this idol of religion, has done great harm. And it's done a lot more harm than even those guys realize. Because the real harm, the greatest harm that it does is it keeps people from Christ. The Christian religion can keep people from Christ. What I hope to do in this message and in the next one is to bring some of these things out so that you hear them from me before you hear them from some unbelieving teacher that desires to turn you away from Christ. If we realize some of these things ahead of time, we're not caught off guard and and tripped up when we hear them from some of these... uh, people who would try to steer us away from Christianity. One thing we need to realize along this line is that we need to make a distinction between the true Christian religion, which is spiritual. It's spiritual. It involves knowing God through Christ. We need to make a distinction between that and the religion of Christianity, which is simply another religion of the world. Maybe the best way to put it is that we must differentiate between the superficial Christianity, which has the form but not the substance 
of Christianity. It has the form, all those outward things, but it doesn't have the real substance, the knowledge of God in Christ. We need to differentiate between that superficial type of Christianity and true spiritual Christianity. There's a big difference. The one has done much harm. The other has done great good. But I'd like to begin this morning by giving a brief overview of the Old Testament presentation of idolatry. This is kind of a lead-up to looking into how this has affected New Testament Christianity and then church history. But I feel like to get the proper setting for this, proper background, we need to look at idolatry in the Old Testament. And that's about as far as we'll get this morning. After mankind fell into sin, false ideas of God and about God developed quickly and spread like wildfire. In other words, you might say it didn't take long for idolatry to be everywhere. If we pick up the account in the scriptures with the time, at the time of Abraham, you remember what God was doing. God was calling Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans. He was calling him out of an idolatrous land, which was itself surrounded by other idolatrous nations. What God was doing, he was beginning to establish a people who would serve him and not worship false gods and idols. But, you know, the roots of idolatry were deep in the human heart, always have been since the fall. The first actual reference that we have of an actual idol in Scripture is the account of Jacob taking Rachel as his wife and trying to secretly get away from Laban. I'll just read you a couple verses here. You don't need to turn to it. But we're told that... uh, when Laban had gone to shear his flock, then Rachel stole the household idols that were her father's. So they were going to sneak away, and before they do that, Rachel steals these household idols that belong to the father. So as when they leave, when Jacob and Rachel leave, Laban pursues them, and he comes after them. And one of the things that he says is that, uh, and now you have indeed gone away because you long greatly for your father's house, but why did you steal my gods? Why did you steal my gods? So he searches for them, can't find them in the tent. Well, Rachel had put them in the saddlebag on the camel, and she was sitting on top of them. Now, that would, if there had been a prophet there, it would have been a prime time to mock the idols. You're sitting on your idol. But that didn't happen. I'm just saying. That's, that's the type of thing the prophets would have really laid into. <clears throat> so, anyway, that's the first account of an actual idol that we have in the scriptures. And these household idols were probably not any type of national de- deities. They were lesser, lesser deities that were looked to for daily matters of good fortune. And that's probably the reason that uh, Rachel stole them. Anyway, there were a lot of national deities. And we see that when we uh, come to the nation of Egypt. When Abraham's descendants became slaves in Egypt, 
there were all kinds of Egyptian gods and goddesses. By one count, there were some 1,200 gods in Egypt, and one of the main ones was Pharaoh himself. In fact, when you read through those judgments that God brings upon uh, Egypt, what he was doing there, he was judging the false gods. We a lot of times miss that, but all those things that were judgments were judgments against the false gods. Everything from the sacred Nile being turned into blood to the death of Pharaoh's firstborn who was in line to become another god. The true God appointed Moses to lead his people out of Egypt, but they were hardly out of the land when what happened? They made an idol, saying this is deep in the human heart, you see. They made a, that golden calf. It's amazing, isn't it, that as Moses was on the mount receiving the Ten Commandments, the first two of which have to do with idolatry, the people were right then worshiping an idol, a false god. It's just incredible. Scripture says that they sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. In other words, they were feasting before this image and probably indulging in sexual immorality as part of their worship. I say that because many commentators view this phrase, rose up to play, as a reference to sexual indulgence, which was part of many of the false religions of the ancient world. I'll have a little more to say about that later. Anyway, Moses shatters the Ten Commandments, and then he takes that golden calf and grinds it into powder, throws it into the water, and makes the people drink the water. I'm not sure of the significance of this, but it does show the people how worthless and vain this image was. I mean, there's, there's going to be nothing left of it. Some writers cross-reference this event, event with Proverbs 14.14, 14, which says, The backslider in heart will have his fill of his own ways. Just drink that idol right down. <clears throat> Well, just to go on, we're just kind of tracing idolatry through the Old Testament. After 40 years of wandering, God takes his people into the land of Canaan. What was that? It was a land filled with idolatry. God tells them to destroy the people of the land specifically because of their gross idolatry. Let's turn to Exodus 34. Beginning with verse 12. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which, I'm, which you are going, lest it become a snare in your midst. But rather, you shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their ashram. For you shall not worship any other gods, for the Lord whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they play, and you play, there's that word play, remember, we were talking about that with the uh, uh, people rising up to play. And you play the harlot with other gods and sacrifice to their gods and someone invites you to eat of, their, of his sacrifice and you take some of, your, of his daughters 
for your sons and his daughters play the harlot with the, with their gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. You see that word play a, a bunch in here. You shall not make for yourself, you shall make for yourself no molten God. So, very clear instructions for the people as they are going into this land of Canaan. Unfortunately, they didn't follow it. And we see what happened in Psalm 106. Why don't we turn to that? Psalm 106 kind of summarizes it for us. Verse 34, they did not destroy the peoples like God had told them to, as, well, as the Lord commanded them. But they mingled with the nations and learned their practices and served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with the blood. Thus they became unclean in their practices and played the harlot in their deeds. So, incredible, isn't it? Sacrificing their sons and daughters. This is what, that was a, one of the reasons God wanted them to go in and destroy the land because of the evil of what they were doing, the Canaanites were doing, all this... Uh, Terrible sin related to their idols. Throughout the, their history in the promised land, they repeatedly, that is the Jewish people, the Hebrews, repeatedly fell into idolatry. It was the great national sin of the Jews. Even Solomon with his foreign wives. And then later, the kings of the divided kingdom Almost all of those kings were involved in this sin of idolatry. In fact, it was the sin that eventually caused God to send both Israel and Judah into captivity. If, you, if you're taking notes and you want to read about it in just a short section, you could look at 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 7 through 23. But I'm just going to paraphrase it for you. I'm just picking out little phrases here. God says that he brought judgment upon Israel because, quote, they feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations. They built for themselves high places. Now, when you read that thing of high places, which is talked about constantly in the Old Testament, these were open-air religious sites, usually on elevated ground. That's why they were called high places, used to worship gods, the gods. So... They built for themselves high places in all their towns. They set up for themselves sacred pillars and ashram. And these ashram were representations of this Canaanite mother goddess, usually from, made from trees or sacred pillars. I guess it would be something like a totem pole today. But that's the, that when they talk about the ashram, that's what we're talking about. So they set up these sacred pillars and ashram on every high hill. And this is talking about this is talking about the Jewish people, you see. This is talking about Israel. They served idols concerning which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this thing. 
Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways. However, they did not listen to the Lord, and he was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. So Israel was carried away into exile from their own land to Assyria. So the point is, this was the judgment. This was the reason that they were taken into captivity because of their idolatry. The amazing thing is, is that while they were doing this, worshiping all these idols, at the same time, they were saying they were worshiping Jehovah. In other words, when the Jewish people involved themselves in idolatry, the, the way of the nations, they did not openly renounce worship in the true God. They just combined it with the practices of the Canaanite religion. They were trusting in elements of their God-given religion, mostly the externals, even as they were practicing things which were an abomination to God. They felt secure, you see, in their religious system because these idols of religion had blinded them to their sin. Their, their religion had blinded them to their sin. As an example of what we're talking about here, let's turn to Jeremiah chapter 7. <clears throat> trying to trace this thing of idolatry through the Old Testament. Jeremiah 7. Jeremiah 7, 1 through 10. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, that is at the temple, and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah, who enter by, the, by these gates to worship the Lord, the people going into the temple. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words, saying, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, and if you truly practice justice before, uh, between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and swear falsely and offer sacrifices to Baal and walk after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, We are delivered that you may do all these abominations. What's going on here? Well, these people are trusting in their religious system. Even as they're worshiping false gods, 
and committing all kinds of injustice and sin. What they're saying to themselves, basically, this is what they're saying to themselves, nothing can happen to us because we have the temple. We offer sacrifices there. We have the Ark of the Covenant in the temple. Our religious system will protect us. In other words, they were hiding behind their religion. They're hiding their sin, you see, behind their religious system. What had happened in the course of time here with the Jewish people is that little by little, these foreign gods had been incorporated into the Jewish religion. They were now part of the cultural consensus which the people accepted because their kings and their priests were telling, telling them that everything was okay. It may have been somewhat of a gradual thing. That's often how sin creeps in. But by this time, what we're reading here, there's all kinds of corruption going on in the temple. And yet, they're saying the temple of the Lord. So, we need to remember, we're talking about this idol of religion, which can bring about unspeakable evil, even as people are supposedly still worshiping God. And I want us to get a feel for how bad things had become. So, Let's turn to 2 Kings 23. 2 Kings 23. This is the account of the reform under King Josiah, which took place after they'd found the book of the law there in the temple, they were kind of, Josiah said, let's kind of uh, do some uh, reconstruction here, a little work on the temple, get it looking a little better. And while they were working on it, they found the book of the law. And when they found it, they realized how messed up they really were in their religious practices. Uh, so we can see one reason that things got as bad as they did is because the priests and the people had disregarded God's word. There's a clue to how to keep things on track right there. But anyway, the, the thing I want to do here, what I want us to realize from this section is how bad, how really evil the religion had become in and around Jerusalem, the holy, the holy city. You know, it's called the holy city and in God's holy temple. So let's look at 2 Kings 23, and we'll begin reading with verse 4. Then the king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priests of the second order and the doorkeepers to bring out of the temple of the Lord. Now, don't just read over that. Bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels that were made for Baal, all, all the temples that were made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the hosts of heaven. And he burned them outside of Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried the ashes to Bethel. And he did away with the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had appointed to burn incense in the high places in the cities of Judah and in the surrounding areas of Jerusalem, 
also those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and to the moon and to the constellations and to all the hosts of heaven. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord. Again, out of the house of the Lord, you see. Outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron and burned it at the brook Kidron and ground it into dust and threw the, its dust in the graves of the common people. And he also broke down the houses of the male prostitutes which were in the house of the Lord. Think of that. The houses of the male prostitutes were in the house of the Lord where the women were weaving hangings for the Asherah. And then if you just skip over to verse 10, I mean this whole section here, uh, almost to the end of the chapter, deals with all that was going on in the temple in and around Jerusalem. But I just want to hit the high points here. So verse 10. He also defiled Topeth, which is in the valley of the sons of Hinnom, that no man might make his sons and his daughters pass through the fire from Moloch. What's that telling us? This valley of the sons of Hinnom was right outside Jerusalem. This is where the, the Canaanites had formerly sacrificed their children to Moloch. By this time, the, the people of Israel were doing the same thing right outside of Jerusalem, right in the southern uh, section of Jerusalem. They were offering their children, burning them to death for, to this, this uh, idol of Moloch. So, the scriptures goes on then and names more of the abominations in and around Jerusalem. But I just want us to think about this. Here's child sacrifice right there in the holy city. And here's ritual prostitution right in the temple. But these people were trusting in their religious system. And it blinded them to their sin. We're the people of God. We have God's temple, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Let me just say as an aside here, we know from ancient records that religious prostitution, including homosexuality, was a common practice in the ancient uh, Near Eastern religions. The pagan temples, the pagan temples were cesspools of iniquity. And this is what the temple of God in Jerusalem had become. Yet again, I say they were trusting in all these external things. We have the temple, you see, the temple of the Lord. Trusting in their religious system despite the fact that it was an abomination to God. I'm jumping ahead here just for a moment, but I, I think we should make at least one contemporary application. As America continues to disregard God's word, just forget about it like they had there at the, at the temple until Josiah found it. If, as America continues to disregard God's word and embraces paganism, which is what we're doing, we'll see more and more of these terrible sins promoted as good things 
That's what was happening in the temple. These things were promoted as, this is good. This is what God wants us to do. And this won't only be done by the atheists. It will also be done by those who have a form of godliness but deny its spiritual power. Those who have an idol of religion. The people that have an idol of religion often will be the ones who persecute the ones who have the true desire to follow God and serve Him. When we talk of this idol of religion, we should realize the great power that this idol has over the people. It's certainly one of the primary idols that we must be aware of today if we're going to heed John's exhortation, which is the thing we're looking at uh, for all these things, which is little children, guard yourselves from idols. If we're going to do that, we're going to have to deal with this idol really clearly in our own minds and hearts this idol of religion. So I want to close by considering why this idol of religion seems to have so much power over the hearts and minds of people. And I think there are three primary reasons for this. First, it appeals to the flesh. Secondly, it's empowered by Satan. And third, it al- almost always is combined with worldly power, which includes the power of money Now, I want to expand on each one of those. First of all, the idol of religion has power because it appeals to the flesh. The elaborate rituals, the exotic ceremonies, the colorful costumes excite the senses. Also, there is usually impressive temples and statues and artwork and paintings produced by the art and thought of man. The man produces them and man likes them. They're appealing to him. In some cases, immoral sexual aspects are involved. In some cases, drugs and intoxicants draw people in. There's a lot of religions of the world that have that as part of their, their makeup. But even if that's not the case, there is often rhythmic music and chants that appeal to the flesh. Often there are secret initiations and ceremonies that give a sense of mystery and intrigue. All these things draw people in, you see. On top of all that, this idol of religion does not deal with the sinfulness of the human heart. That's really one of the big things. It doesn't get down to the real needs. It offers a false hope to a worshiper that God or the gods will be pleased by these ceremonies. The person is made to think that they can manipulate the gods or goddesses through their rituals and ceremonies or their magic incantations, some formula, some special holy words. So it appeals to the flesh, this idol of religion. You might say, how does something like offering your children to Moloch appeal to the flesh? Well, there are ways that I think that's possible. Let me give a contemporary example. In some countries around the world, 
for economic and social reasons, people want male children more than female children. Consequently, right now in the world, there's over 100,000 fewer women than there are men. Why? Because of sex-selective abortions. While this may not exactly be offering your children to Moloch, it is destroying children for selfish reasons. That's what we're talking about, an appeal to the flesh, you see. But actually, if we think of this thing of child sacrifice, I would put that mostly in the, in the next category, that these religions are empowered by Satan. We're talking about how come these things have so much power. Well, they, they appeal to the flesh, but they're also empowered by Satan. Remember that we read in Psalm 106, even, they even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. Paul tells it this way in the New Testament. What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that these things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons, not to God. So this idol of religion has power because of demonic involvement. You know, it's incredible when you think of some of the, th the things that people believe and do in the name of religion. It's just incredible. You can't, you can't believe it. There's no way of explaining it except that somehow Satan's involved in this. He's there darkening the mind through this idol of religion. Lastly, as I said at the beginning of this message, this idol of religion is often combined with the idol of power. The powerful empires and cultures of the ancient world all had their religious systems. The religion was empowered by its association with the financial, political, and military power of the culture, and the culture was in turn empowered by the religion. They had a, a working relationship with one another. The idols functioned together, these idols functioned together, the idol of religion, the idol of power, to capture the, and control the hearts and lives of people. For instance, people were drawn to the religion of a culture because of the impressive power of the culture. You know, we're great and we defeat our en enemies because of the gods being on our side. On the other hand, there was also the threat of punishment from the power structure of the culture if you didn't comply with the religion. These false gods can be both impressive and violent. You say, well, does that happen in Christianity? It most certainly does, unfortunately. And we'll look at that some next week. Also under this heading of the association of the power of power and religion, you can probably put this power of money because the idol of religion is often empowered by sordid gain. There's money to be made by those who embrace the idol of religion. Jeremiah 6.13 says this, is speaking concerning the inhabitants of Israel, for from the least of them even to the greatest, everyone is greedy for gain. And from the prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. 
and they have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed because of the abominations they have done? They were not even ashamed at all. They did not even know how to blush. The point I'm making here is that power, the power of money is often behind much false religion. You know, you see that really in kind of a, it's almost, it could be humorous if we weren't dealing with such a serious subject, but there in Acts 19, Paul is going into Ephesus and he's preaching that the gods, gods made by hands are not gods at all. What happens? Gets all these silversmiths all worked up because they're going to lose their money. Uh, we got to do something about this because they, people won't be buying our idols anymore. That what, this man's preaching that idols made by hands are not, are not gods at all. So they're all worked up about, first of all, about their money. And then they say, oh, by the way, this is bringing disrespect upon our, God, our goddess Artemis also. It's like that's kind of a second thought. The money was the big thing. <clears throat> well, you can read that in Acts 19 sometime. In closing, then, I just want to emphasize that all cultures have their idols. All cultures have their idols. So does the American culture. That wasn't just true for these Old Testament cultures. It's true for modern cultures also. The, go the gospel stands against all idolatry, especially the, this idol of religion. Idolatrous religion lacks the life-giving power of God. It can have a lot of stuff, have all this power we're talking about, but the one thing it doesn't have, it doesn't have the life-giving power of God. Christ has exposed the emptiness of all these idols of man. There's a spiritual power in true God-honoring worship that opposes the flesh, resists Satan, and overcomes the world. They say that, you know, sometimes when we think about these things, we're ready to go out and start smashing some idols. Think about this idol of religion. But the, really, the way to really counter this is to live the God-honoring life where people can see the difference between religion and true Christianity. They see it in your life. Lord willing, we'll deal more with this idol of religion next time because I think it's important to see how this developed throughout church history. We haven't even done that. Uh, we just looked at the Old Testament. There's kind of a lead up to that. As John said, little children, guard yourselves from idols, especially this idol of religion. I'll close there.